on it or an article, the title of it would be, Let Love Be Without Hypocrisy. The literal phrase, without hypocrisy, means genuine. Literally, I had to call Rhiannon and make sure I did it right. Originally, when I was going to do this message, it was going to be on the genuine church. And as I began to walk through it and look at it, I said, I really want to call it the loving church, and we'll see why, because that flows from that title, let love be without hypocrisy. And the idea of without hypocrisy is be genuine. Every church, you can walk in every church in our nation today, and I grew up in a church, uh, Peter and I have joked about this before, but I grew up in a church, and some of you may as well when I tell you what I'm about to tell you, the church that I grew up in every Sunday, without fail, we sang Love Lifted Me. I still have it memorized. In my, I won't sing it because some of you haven't eaten today or plan to eat later. But every Sunday, we were, you could mark it down. We were going to sing Love Lifted Me. And for oh, those of us who were kids, and you know the way the church was built, you had your aisles, that had the middle aisle, and you had a section here. And in the back, they had what well, I think they called it a narthex or something like that. You know what we called it? place where the kids go to hang out while church is going on because mommy made me go to church. But I'll sit back here and make paper airplanes and shoot paper wads and not pay attention. That's what it was for. But you could bank on it somewhere in that service and usually toward the end, we were going to sing Love Lifted Me. Go in any church or really, really anything that calls themselves religion or of God, whatever it might be. And one of the things that you will always hear is what? We love you. We love you. Back in the 70s, I got saved in 1970, and, and in the 70s, uh, cults were kind of interesting. Of course, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what a cult was, I didn't know, but, but I knew what a Mooney was because they were, they were pretty obvious when you saw one of them, what, who they were. And, and then you, the Hare Krishnas, and, and I began to study all that stuff and read it and, and look at it and watch it. And my, my brother came was right in you know, the 60s, the whole, uh, he was, he was a, a big part of the, the hippie movement and watching those, you know, I was the other end and watching them and like he was Jimi Hendrix and I was Elvis, that, that kind of thing. So just watching and then, and then after I got saved, beginning to think about, I'm going to listen to what different people have to say. And, and what was fascinating about, and I had friends that got involved in cults, and whether, you know, whatever that cult might be, but one of the ways that cults grew their numbers was they would find particularly younger people that were dissatisfied with their homes or their traditional churches or just their life in general, particularly on college campuses and, and uh, even high schools, and they would give them a place where they felt like they were loved or part of a family, a place of communion. Now, where should people be able to find that? In the church. That's who we are to be. And the way this paragraph is broken down, this section of Romans that we're going to look at over the next two weeks is, or at least two weeks, knowing me, is... He's focusing on there are two groups of people on planet Earth. Jesus talked about it himself. There are two groups of people on planet Earth. There are believers and there are, yeah, see, very sharp, non-believers. Jesus called them sheep and goats. Goats are kind of a real popular thing now, like greatest of all time, but that's not what Jesus was talking about. Sheep, he said, will be on my right hand. Goats will be where? They'll be cast out. 
He said there are believers and there are non-believers. When you get to judgment, you're either at the great white throne judgment for non-believers or you're at the judgment seat of Christ where believers get their rewards. But that's it. There's not, there's not an in can't find it in scripture. There's not an in-between place where you go and you hang out till you get it right and then you get in. You don't get redeemed after you die. And I realize there are people that believe that that are in mainline churches, even evangelical churches. I mean, that's not what this sermon is about. But what it's important to note that for us as believers, it simply comes down to what the scripture teach. And then there are two groups of people. There are those of us who know Jesus Christ. We're born again. We are Christ followers. We're Christians. Whatever term you want to use. Because for God so loved the world that he gave, and we've trusted what Jesus Christ did at the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel, we're born again. We're God's children. We're sheep. And there are the vast majority of people are those who look at that and say, that's not for me. And many of them are religious. Some are pagans. Many are religious. Many are what would we call a secular humanist, whatever terminology. They may not use that term to describe themselves, but basically what it comes down to is who's running my life? I am. I am God. No one's going to tell me what to do. And if you want to be religious, that's fine. But that's not for me. Now, what we're going to look at in this section of Romans are both groups of people and how we can be, if you look at the top of your handout, the loving church to both groups. And notice the theme, let love be without hypocrisy. We want to be genuine. We're going to start with us, believers, within the fellowship of the church, realizing this fact before we get into it. In a fellowship, in a building, and I realize now a lot of it's not done in buildings. Some of it's done virtually. But when there are people who go to a church building, a lot of it's written about a new time. We're studying the book of Second Peter in my 930 class, and it was written to address false teachers who existed where? In the church. Not outside, in your midst, Peter said. And so there are a lot of people who attend church, maybe even work, the pastor that discipled me by video for years and years, Wayne Barber, a few of you know who Wayne was, and, and uh, Scott Jones, Chris Ellison, and I greatly admired Wayne. He had a tremendous impact and influence in our lives through the precept ministry, and we finally got to meet him, and, and Scott and Chris in particular got to spend time with him. Just, I loved Wayne Barber. He passed away a few years ago, tremendous teacher of the Word of God. I still listen to him. He was in the ministry. He had the role Cameron Ames has for us. He was in the ministry. He was a student pastor on staff of a Baptist church for 10 years before he got saved. That's not unusual. I'm a, Cameron, I think we're okay, we're okay with Cameron. He's going to get saved today just to be saved. Oh, certain, certain, certain groups he can get saved every week. The one that I grew up in, was one of those. Wayne Barber, who's a tremendous teacher of the Word of God, a great personality, big man, just you love, big bear of a guy, six seven, about two hundred eighty pounds, played college basketball, just a great. You couldn't be around him and not really enjoy the moment. But he was doing 
church and very successful in the eyes of everyone of what he did, but he wasn't even a Christian. Judas, for example, how many of you have children or grandchildren? Most of you. How many of them have one named Judas? Oh, Rhett does, huh? Rhett's got one we don't even know about. We shall talk. Nobody names their kid Judas. Why? Because of the connotation of who he was. Now, here's Judas. Three years he spent in close personal contact on a daily basis, all day and night, with the Son of God, God himself, walking around, watching him walk on water, watching him change water into wine, watching him heal people, listening to him teach. And yet clearly at the end of his life, was Judas a believer? No. Why is it important? As we're going to see the next couple of weeks, what we do matters. We're not going to change our nation politically And it's not about Democrat and Republican. It's about trying to do what's best for the people of this nation if you're in leadership. We're not changing that until individual lives are changed by personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And they become not about me, but about the people I serve. Do you realize when we started our nation, and this is a side note, this one won't cost you anything, this is free. When we started our nation, do you know why people went to the capital of our nation as representatives or senators or even as presidents. You know why they went? To serve the people. Public servants. They were to go for a period of time and then go back and work their farm or whatever they did and go back. Just let somebody else do it. Now it's a career. If you're a, if you're a congressman, what do you spend all your time doing? Running for office every two years. And you don't accomplish anything. Now, if we're going to be a nation, I mean, God has blessed us incredibly. But if we're ever going to be, again, what he wants us to be, it's when individual lives are changed by Jesus Christ and they become genuine. All of us, whether, again, Democrat or Republican, has nothing to do with it. The, the thing, if you talk to people, you know the thing, that drives people crazy the most about politicians is you just don't think like you can trust them. You don't know what the truth is. <clears throat> you don't know who to believe and not to believe. Same thing with the pandemic. You just don't know who you can trust. As a Christian, I know that my fellow believers sitting here and Bartlett and other, I was talking to a dear friend of mine who's on staff of Bellevue Baptist Church and, and we've been friends for a long, long time. I started in 1984. He started at Bellevue in 1985 in student ministry. We've been friends for years and years, and he's about ready to retire. And I know I can call him and talk to him, and I have over the years, and we you know, vent about what's going on or just talk as a brother in Christ who happens to also be a pastor. But I know if he tells me something, I can count on it. I know. I have dear friends brothers, sisters in Christ that I know I can trust. I don't have to worry about that they're lying to me. I don't have to worry about them that they're going to hurt me. What we need to say, the two groups of people, again, you got sheep and you got goats. And we're going to begin with the sheep. How can we love each other in a genuine way? 
And then we're going to say, okay, once we get that right, the Bible talks about judgment begins at the house of God. Once we get it right in our fellowship, loving each other genuinely without hypocrisy, then we take it out to the world. And we love those who don't understand where we're coming from, don't agree. That's okay. We love them anyway. For example, did Jesus love Judas Iscariot? Sure did. Died for his sins. He loved him to the very end. Did Jesus love Adolf Hitler? Sure did. Died for his sins. Did Jesus love me? Sure did. Died for my sins. And the result is, by my faith in his work, I was born again, and he gave me everything a man could want, a teenager could want, in a difficult time. And he carries me to this day in a difficult time. He will always be with me. He will never leave me, never forsake me. The world needs to know there's somebody like that out there. That it's not religion. It's the person of God himself who wants to enter your life and radically give you purpose, meaning, hope in the midst of a culture that's confused, angry. I mean, what went on in Washington this week, it's like, what are we, a third world country now? It's embarrassing. It's scary. And yet we know where answers can be found. We can fix our nation. Back to verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. We talked about this before, but I want to set that picture as we move it, the history and the context. The word that's translated without hypocrisy is we get our Greek word sincere from it. Or, excuse me, our English word sincere. In other words, genuine or sincere. And the idea in the original language meant without wax. What does that mean, without wax? Well, what would happen in the culture of the day is that, let's say I made pots and wanted to sell them to you in the marketplace, the agora. You would come to there and you want to buy my pots. Well, a sincere pot would be one without wax. What does that mean? Well, if I made the pot and then it had like a little hairline fracture in it, what I would do is I would take some wax and put it in the fracture and work it in there so it would look like it was what? Sincere. But then if you held it up to the sun for a little bit, what would you see? A crack. Well, do you, who wants a pot with a crack in it? Nobody. So what, using that word to describe our love, God wants to have a, lo- a, a love without wax. That's just real, genuine, sincere. Why is this so important historically? If you th- when this was written, what set the first century church apart from the Roman Empire? And the Roman Empire was tough. It was hard, it was wicked, it was cruel. What set the first century church apart in the midst of the Roman Empire under people like Nero, just an absolute despot and a pig in the way he treated, particularly Christians, the way he persecuted them. What set the first century church apart was that no matter how they were treated, they demonstrated love to their enemies. They demonstrated love to the people no one else would love. The lepers, for example. 
in that culture, if someone in your family was sick, say leprosy, the Roman Empire didn't have Medicare to take care of them. It was on you to take care of your family member or they died. The Christians would step in and take care of the ones no one else would take care of. Demonstrated their love. They were genuine. They were humble. They had to create words to describe them because they were so different than the world around them. Isn't that what we want for the church today? Isn't that what Jesus wants for his body? Is to be so different, so genuine, so sincere, beginning with loving each other so that the world is drawn to that. That's literally what happened in the Roman Empire. The Christians were so powerful and so strong in the way they loved each other. And you go back, don't read the Bible, go back and read the historical documents that were written by the secular historians. Go back and read history. The Roman Empire was turned upside down by Christianity because they were so different. They were, the secular world was drawn to the way they loved each other and began to imitate them because they had something no one else had. They loved each other. Genuinely loved each other. So let your love be without hypocrisy. I want you to keep that in your mind in all that we look at as we begin to walk through these verses. Because loving with hypocrisy is a pretense. The word hypocrisy meant to wear a mask. Remember Greek theater? If you've ever seen any Greek theater, and you're talking about some boring stuff. My daughter, Beth, was in drama throughout high school, and they did a play when she was at ECS, and that's called Antigone. How many of you have ever seen Antigone? Whatever you do, don't waste your time and go see it. It was one of those Greek tragedies. At the end of it, every single person was either either committed suicide or was killed. I was like, and my daughter was in it, and I couldn't I couldn't stay awake. But in Greek tragedy, what you would do is you play a part. So you'd pick up a mask, and you would be whatever was on that mask. Then you'd play another part. Put that mask down, grab another one. You'd be somebody else. That's exactly what he's talking about here. Don't love with a mask. Get rid of the masks. You think anybody ever plays games at church? Sure they do. With each other? What this is talking about is we know each other. And we love each other anyway. We care about one another. Even, even if you don't reciprocate. Even if you don't care about me, even if you don't love me in return. When I do marriage counseling, this is one thing I spend 70% of my time with young couples in marriage counseling, I spend on two things. Number one, you better get on a budget and stick to it. Or you'll fight. Everything will begin magnified and you'll fight constantly. Get on a budget and stick to it and honor God with your money. But you know what I spend most of my time on? Because the first thing I'll ask them, and I've shared this with you before, but it, it, it's funny to me, especially having done it for so many years. The first thing I ask them, like Cameron and Madison, being young, and they can say, we're going to get married. But the first thing I would ask them in marriage counseling is, do you love each other? And now they're looking at me like, we're wasting time with this clown. Of course we love each other. We're getting married. And then I'll ask them to define it. And they're like, oh, uh, uh. 
said, always start with the guy to be nice. Because he won't have it. He won't. And the one thing you focus on in a marriage, you better get the money right. Obviously, spiritually, we deal with that. But you need to understand to love each other means there are going to be times when you don't like to look at the person you're married to, but you love them anyway. It means you choose to do what's right even though you don't feel like it. I've been married 47 years. And I know there are times when Mary doesn't want me in the room with her. I realize that. But we, we stay married because we understand what it means to love one another. That's what the church has to understand. That there are going to be things we don't agree on. Bring up politics. That's all you got to do. There are going to be things we don't agree on. Pandemic. There are going to be things we don't agree on. That's okay. It's okay. Even if you're wrong, if you don't mind being wrong, I'm cool with that. You can disagree with me. That's fine. And sometimes it's just, there, are, there are things called differences of opinion, even in Scripture. You look at Paul and, and John Mark. At one point, Paul said, I don't want him around anymore. He's not going with me on the missionary trip. He let me down. He's out. And then you read on later in one of his epistles, what does Paul say? Please send John Mark to me. I need him. They got it. They fi- fixed it. They worked it out. Why? Because they're brothers in Christ. They love one another. Does that mean you're going to like every single thing about me? I can promise you that will be a no. But you love me in spite of my flaws. We're going to see, here's what I want you to focus on. Everybody talks about love and as I said, you can go any church and they're going to talk about love. But here's what I want us to focus on. I want us to see from God's word what he says about it. Not how I feel. I want you to set feelings aside. They'll take care of themselves when you love genuinely. Feelings take care of themselves. So again, in marriage counseling, that's what I share with them. Is you just choose to do what's right and all the feelings will take care of themselves. Be unselfish and see what happens. Love unconditionally, see what happens. Love without strings attached, see what happens. The emotions will take care of themselves if you do that. What I want us to do is see what God says about it. Not going through the motions, not settling for less than God's best. A loving church, top of your handout again, a loving church is a genuine church. In the 19th century, there was a preacher named Robert Chapman and he was talking about this passage. And he said this, seeing that so many preach Christ and so few live Christ, I will aim to live him. Live Christ. Henry Drummond, who was a friend of the great preacher D.L. Moody, said this, the entrance fee to God's kingdom is nothing, but the annual dues are everything. In other words, how much of me did God save? All. If you look at Romans 12, while we're here, look at verse 1. Very famous. Most of you don't even have to look at it. You probably got it memorized. Paul is summing up what he's been talking about in verses, chapters 1 through 11. 
And he says in Romans 12.1, one of the greatest passages in the Bible, he says this. I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a what? Living sacrifice. That's an oxymoron, is it not? I don't even know what an oxymoron is, but it's a cool word. It's an oxymoron. Live, a sacrifice, by definition, is what? Dead in that culture. So he says, I, you present your bodies a living sacrifice. In other words, dead to sin, if you, if you read Romans 1 through 11, dead to sin, but alive unto God. Now notice the rest of the verse. I present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service of what? Worship. I'm born again. We're in a worship service. I say I worship God with my life. Then the reasonable, logical response, Paul says, is to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Set aside, holy, acceptable unto God. That's your reasonable response. In other words, like Robert Chapman said, my whole life belongs to you, God. When he says present your bodies, that means all that is you, mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, all that is Randy Lockley does not belong to me. It belongs to God. Paul in Galatians 2.20 says, I'm crucified with Christ. I what? I live now for him. I'm crucified with Christ, dead to sin, alive unto God. So the result is, if I'm crucified with Christ, and I've been raised a new life in Christ, all in Romans, and I want to love you, what I then do is I begin to look at you and say, what can, in the body of Christ, what can I do to enhance your spiritual walk? What can I do to benefit you? Not, how can I manipulate you? So we're talking about false teachers in my 930 class, and that's what they do. They manipulate for personal gain, sometimes financial, sometimes just power, sometimes ego. But the goal of one believer for another, particularly for a pastor teacher, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. In Philippians 1, Paul wrote it this way. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That you live your life for him. How can we, as the church, impact our culture like the first century did the Roman Empire? And the answer is, we've got to be genuine. We cannot expect, and please get this, this is really important. We cannot expect as we go out into the world as the body. Number one, if we're not loving each other, are we going to love them? No. So it begins with we're going to love each other. We're going to be looking at that this week, next week. That we love each other. And we have to understand on the front end that loving each other does not mean that we all line up the exact same way. For example, some of you may be fans of the University of Tennessee. I realize that's satanic. I know it's wrong. If you're not a fan of the University of Memphis, there's something wrong with you spiritually. I know that. We know that. But we know what? I love you anyway. Now, can I put something orange on my body? No. I'll break out in hives. Blue, gray, God's callers. I realize that's the case. And we, have, we can have fun with that. I realize some people are lean to a Calvinistic theology. 
I know some people lean to an Armenian theology. You know what I lean to? What the Bible says. And then I've had guys in this building, we've been here a little over 14 years now, in this building, used to sit right back there until I finally ran him off. And every Sunday, he would attack me about not being Calvinistic enough. That I didn't, that I, I thought there was such a thing as free will. He thought I was an absolute false teacher. He wrote John Latimer letters about me. And John said, I can't read this here. You read it. Every week, I'd sit down with him. We read, the, you know, I gave him where I was coming from, the balance of free will and election, all of that. We went through it all. I spent hours with him. And finally I said to him, we're not going to agree on this. I know I'm born again and I love you. And if you're born again, you're supposed to love me. But don't attack me anymore. Particularly, like I finished teaching my class, I get ready to he grabbed me on my way up here. And I'm, going, I'm walking up through the pulpit to share the word of God and I'm hacked off at this guy. Is that, a good, is that a good mindset? No, and I finally told him, I said, we are never going to talk about this on Sunday morning again. If you want to meet with me during the week, I'll do that. Some. <clears throat> he would have monopolized my time. Here's the point. There are believers that are Presbyterian. I know some of you think that's, that's not, that cannot be the case. I was saved in a Cumberland Presbyterian church. There are believers that are Baptist. I think. There are even believers that are Methodist. I there's no way. You know, there are some believers even who are in institutions that don't teach the word, but yet somewhere along the way they got saved. And they just happened to be in a place because of marriage or whatever that's not teaching the word of God. Should we ostracize them and stay away from them? Not everything? Of course not. What we do is lovingly speak the truth in word, in, of the word and try to minister to people. So, how do we do this? In about 10 minutes so you can get home and see the game, I want to begin to look at, we're not doing the outline today, so relax. Some of you going, because here, what we're going to look at are 25 different things that Paul lays out in verses 9 through 21 on how to do this. We're not going to get to 25 today. I, we may get to one, but I want to make sure you, you hear my heart. How do we do this? Rather than just being another year that goes by, a, a difficult year that we're facing as a nation, as a culture, but what a great time to be a Christian. Can you imagine in the, under Nero how difficult life was and yet it, what, a, what a tremendous time it was to be a believer and what they did for the world. Our nation is messed up. What a great time to be a Christian because we have answers. We know the truth. We've been set free. So how does it begin? Well, how are we going to be a loving church? How are we going to be a genuine church? And the answer is it begins with self-discipline. Self-discipline. This is not a message on do this, do this, do this. We will see as we walk through it. It's a message on my life, your life, individually, and then we come together corporately. It begins with each one of us being self-disciplined. John MacArthur put it this way. Self-discipline is the willingness to subordinate personal desires and objectives to those that are selfless and divine. To subordinate that which is attractive and easy to that which is right and necessary. End quote. 
This is what it means to love. We're going to talk about agape versus phileo. This is what it means to love you, is that I'll subordinate what I want for what's best for you. It's always seeking God's best for the other person, realizing God's going to take care of you. That's what it means to love someone. I'll use my young friend Cameron. I appreciate him sitting on the front row so I could do this. Rhett moved to the back. I still see you. I can't see his dad back there, but I know he's back there. All right. I appreciate my young friend, my brother in Christ, our, our student pastor and sweet wife. Because I look 20 years when I'm not here any longer, and I mean on the planet, that's God's business, but I'm assuming 20 years I'm probably not going to be around. And I have a privilege. I told, told you last week about the two young guys that called me and wanted me to spend some time with them, help begin to walk through as young Christians how they could get involved in ministry. I'm, I'm honored that they even thought to call me because one of them I haven't seen in 25 years. His dad was a friend of mine. But I think what a privilege it is to have a young man and his wife and God gives them children down the road and for us to be able to pour, particularly spend time with, pour my life into and, and see what God's going to do knowing that our church is in great hands down the road. Self-discipline begins with loving, begins with I exist as a vessel through whom Jesus Christ can work. It is not ever about me. You ever hear anybody say this, you can't love others till you love yourself? I disagree with that. I hate myself because I know me. I know my sin. But God loves me anyway. I know I'm forgiven. And so I understand what it means to be forgiven. I understand what it means to have experienced grace. And so I want to share that with other people and love them. Share with them how their lives can be changed. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul, who wrote, obviously, Romans, This metaphor we looked at last week, running a race. I want you to listen to what he said here. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. Talking about running in a race. We, as Christians, compete for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus. Not with uncertainty. Thus I fight. Not as one who beats the air. I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. What does that mean? Paul's saying, I run my race in a way that Jesus is honored. I submit my life to God's word always. Every area of my life, physically, mentally, emotionally, intellectually, socially, I I submit every area of my life to God's will. Why? Because that's being genuine. Hebrews 12, the writer wrote this. You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord from the Old Testament. Or be discouraged by when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He scourges every son whom he receives. 
you endure chastening. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So what does God say? Through Hebrews, whoever wrote it. He said, don't forget, if you're a child of God, God's going to treat you like a son or a daughter. And when you need to be chastened, he's going to do that. When you need to be disciplined, he's going to discipline you. And your attitude has to be, all right, what do I need to learn from this discipline? Get trained by it so I can be a better son or a better daughter. How many of you have ever had to punish your children? I know some of you have perfect children and you never have to do that. It's your goal when you punish them to make sure they hurt. My dad's was, but maybe yours isn't. Mary and I had a, used to have a conversation with my son, who's now 33. When he was, he was so stubborn. When he was, I never really spanked my girls, but Andy, I had to. I had got carpal tunnel from spanking him. But and I remember one time I was spanking him because I don't even know what it was. And uh, Mary said, "You're hitting him too hard." I said, "No, I'm not. He ain't crying yet." When you discipline your children, it wasn't to make them hurt. What was it to make them understand? You can't do that. As my child, you can't do that. It's not good for you. When God disciplines us, what's he saying? I don't like it. But what's he saying? Randy, pay attention. That's not good. You can't do that. That doesn't glorify me. Get that out of your life. Get victory over that so that you can glorify me. I shared last week about my temper in playing basketball. and Finally, I had to make a decision. Either quit playing basketball or get your temper under control. Because God wasn't being honored by the way I was doing it. That's a small example. Give me one last example about this and then we'll, we're going to stop today. One last thing. With my brothers growing up, with my whole family, I got saved at 16 years old, went back in my home. Nobody in my home was a Christian. Nobody. Mom, dad, my two brothers. Well, I always had a personality, like I do now, that I love to talk. I know somebody find it hard to believe. I love to talk. And man, what I got to say, what are, it was different for me, radical. What did I want to talk about? Jesus? What's the last thing my two brothers want me to talk to them about? Jesus? My mom wanted to talk about it. I was terrified to talk to my dad about it. So, I, man, my, brother, my you know, siblings are siblings, and they're going to fight anyway. And I said, well, if we're going to fight, let's just fight about Jesus. But the way I witnessed to them was not productive. It wasn't so much that I loved them. I, I didn't know what I was doing. It wasn't so much that I loved them as I wanted them to understand that I got it, and you don't got it. But that's crazy. You're not smart. What I needed to share with them, and it's the way I witness to them now, is God loves you. And I don't want to see you spend eternity separated from him. I want you to know the peace I have and the joy I have. It's not that Randy is your brother special. They used to think I thought I was holier than him, and I probably did. I did it the wrong way. And God had to convict me that Jesus loved my two brothers. And I didn't like the way they lived their lives. That's not my business. My business was to love them. 
share the gospel with them. And in time, I got it right. But I had to be disciplined to get there. Here's the point of the passage in Hebrews, and then next week we're going to get into the outline. Here's the point of the passage in Hebrews. I, to be genuine, have to say, Lord, here I am. If you need to spank me, spank me. If you need to scourge me, scourge me. Because I want to be the best possible son I can be. I don't want to accept I'm saved and I get to go to heaven when I die. I don't want to accept I'm saved and, hey, I'm a a preacher. I don't want to accept I'm saved, I'm doing all right. I want to be the best. I want to be driven. Talked about last week, never being satisfied. I want that to be the passion of my life. And I'm next week, one week from today, I will be 67 years old. Okay, maybe I have 10 more years, 20 more years. Whatever I have, I don't care. I want to finish strong. I want to be everything God called me to be and never rest in the past, my laurels. I want to be loving. I want to be genuine. I want you to pick me up and hold me up to the sun and not see any wax. You might see some arthritis, but you won't see any wax. I want to be real. And I hope you feel that as your pastor. I want you to know that's what I want for you. Because every one of you has a sphere of influence. You may not think you do, but I promise you, you do. Look at somebody as cool as Cooper. And Cooper's in what, middle school? And I love Coop. He's a special young man. He loves Jesus. Middle school is hard. You know, the first, first thing I ever did in ministry, the reason I got into it originally years ago as a layperson in college, they needed somebody to teach seventh. I was in a church of 5,000 people. They needed somebody to teach seventh grade boys and nobody would do it. And I said, well, I can do that. And I fell in love with seventh grade boys. Now, if they asked me to teach seventh grade boys today, you know what I would say? Nah, I don't know. I think Cameron or Red ought to do that. But that's how God got, got me into teaching the Bible to them and spending time with them, and playing ball with them, and hanging out with them. And I found out I loved them. And that's really what I wanted to do with my life. It took me a while to get there, but I finally got there. Now, what does all that rambling today say? It says this, my prayer for me, for you, individually, and for us as Christ Church, is that we just don't enter another year and rock through and do the best we can. That we'd be genuine, loving. Is life going to be hard? Yeah. 2020 was not an easy year, was it? Looking at 2021 right now, does that look like it's going to be any easier? Not right now, it doesn't. But you know what? God is our dad who never stopped being God, never will. And what he says is, take the difficult time and love people in the middle of it and see what I do. Would you bow your heads, please? Lord, as we finish out our time together with you around your word, I pray we take that with us that we're not satisfied, that we're never satisfied, that we want to be genuine.
without wax, sincere. The people may disagree, and that's great. Not great that they disagree, but great that they can disagree knowing that I'll still love them anyway in the church and outside the church. But Lord, let's start with in the church, that we love each other no matter what. No matter what mode of baptism you think is proper or how you take communion or how often you take it or how you dress or which, which Bible you use where you are theologically in different areas, that it's okay that we love without pretense, without mask. We just can be genuine. And as we're genuine with each other and we grow in that grace and knowledge and the love for each other, we then manifest that to the world corporately as Christ church and individually as believers who happen to be part of that body, that we'd be excited about that and share that love of Christ with our world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand if you're in the building with us as we close out our time together.